Hello, Acquired Limited Partners. We hope you had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. If you are in the U.S., Dave and I are coming to you bright and early Monday morning on, uh, on Memorial Day. Yeah, happy Memorial Day. We wanted to do a Q&A episode because over the last couple of months, we've gotten some awesome questions from LPs, and we've kind of been stockpiling them since... Uh, our LP episodes of late have been specific about a topic or with a guest, and we cherry-picked a bunch of our favorites today, some of which have to do with all the IPOs that have happened. And so we want to do a little section before we we dive into Q&A here to kind of just give an update on each of these IPOs, specifically their share prices, so sort of how it's gone with a little bit more time. Granted, we don't have 6, 12 months behind us, but um, we have more than the initial day of trading to go off of. <laughs> And kind of a, a couple of remarks about this class so far that we are in the middle of. Um, so, David, do you want to take us into to IPO uh, updates? We've covered three of the A-plus IPOs so far, uh, Lyft, Pinterest, and Uber. There has also been Zoom, which we are going to cover on uh, not our, our next our next main show episode we're going to release today. It's going to be on electronic arts with founder trip hawkins this is going to be great can't wait for that to drop probably the next episode after that we are going to cover zoom with a very special guest board member santi from emergence has agreed to join us so that's why we've been holding off on that one but to start with the beginning here lift oh man i remember another uh, uh well it wasn't a holiday morning but it was a saturday morning running into the office early to record we were very excited lyft priced at 72 dollars a share we might have recorded a little early on that one <laughs> uh as as everyone probably knows it sort of fell off the cliff from there it's trading at 57 right now the way we left that i think was that it traded up a little bit it spiked i think it went up into the 80s there was so much uh pent-up demand and pent-up uh, euphoria around it yeah, and then the next sort of week saw that initial slide, and yeah, yeah, it's since stabilized uh, uh, yep. quite a bit. And I believe it's at fifty-seven dollars a share. I believe it's right around sixteen billion dollar market cap. So you know, hardly um, a fall off a cliff is harsh, but uh, the initial euphoria was uh, has certainly been dampened around Lyft, and and that carried into Uber, which we'll get to in a minute. A few folks have asked, so you know, what happened? And I think David, you nailed it that the pop that Lyft had was a proxy for people's excitement about a big set of tech IPOs in general. And then I think the sort of uh, uh, sobering, I guess, uh, over the, the last few weeks has really been a reflection of evaluating, one, their intense, intense competition with Uber, but then sort of looking at the business a little bit more independently rather than emblematic of a, of a class of companies. I think the other thing that happened was when the Uber S1 hit and people started really digging into Uber and the dynamics leading up to their IPO and people started realizing like, shoot, where's the path to profitability of any of these companies? And I think that set off a lot of alarm bells. If obviously for Uber and for Lyft too. But what's interesting is, that, so if you look at <laughs> the other IPOs, Zoom and Pinterest, they contrasted with Lyft and Uber have traded up since the IPO and Zoom astoundingly so. So Zoom priced at $36 a share is now trading at $76 a share. Notably, it is the only company of this set that is actually profitable and uh, I believe quite profitable. Pinterest 
priced at $19 a share, is now trading at $26 a share, had traded up quite a bit and then came down when they reported Q1 earnings. I believe it came down because while revenue growth was strong, uh, losses were larger than expected. So, I mean, clearly, like the biggest thing that's going on with these IPOs right now is that the public markets are sending a very, very clear signal to everyone that profitability either path to or, or ideally, as evidenced by Zoom, actual profitability is something that they value very highly. It is interesting to note with Uber, they priced at 45 and they're trading at 42. I think that if you didn't look at any numbers and just took the temperature of the media landscape right now, you would walk away feeling like if I had to take a guess at their share price, it'd be a lot lower than 42. We've definitely seen a world that drummed up some serious doomsday scenarios, and that's that's not what we're looking at. But to reiterate, I think what we said on the episode, anchoring at $120 billion valuation, what, 9, 12 months ago, and then two months ago at 100, and it just felt like it's on this slide. And I think that uh, that's a lesson to be learned for future Ubers. So I suppose like the the one a decade that's going to end up being like Uber. Yeah. What's interesting is, you know, with Uber and Lyft both, I mean, I think as we painted on the episodes, like the the market is still massive. The growth of the market is still large. Now, a lot of that growth has been accruing to Lyft versus Uber in the US over the past year. So the opportunity is still there. Uh, and I think just the this overhang of like the profitability question is really, really weighing on these companies. It makes sense. Like eventually, like you have to build a profitable business or you don't have a business. You know, Ben, you pointed out on the Uber episode, you know, this is a company that has raised more money than any other company in history <laughs> on the private markets and still doesn't have a path to profitability. So I can rightly understand the skepticism on that front. There was a little bit of a narrative overcorrection on like, wow, is there a business here at all? And it's it's interesting, coincidentally, that the prices that the stock is trading at $42 a share, which is where I believe it closed on on the first day. Uber pre-IPO had raised more money than Lyft's current market cap. <laughs> like that's crazy. And and now because they raised nine billion dollars in their IPO or eight or whatever, they're close to total money ever raised being two X what Lyft this current market cap is it's an outlier in every sense of the word and I, I do think the the important thing to pay attention to with uber is can they slow their net loss and get to profitability before the cash that they've raised runs out given they just raised nine billion dollars and they're burning three a year so you know the next few years are going to be quite telling for me the wild card in the uber and lyft uh, stories here, which, as we said on the episode, the story of our time. The wild card is okay. They're now both public companies with market caps marked to market. There is clearly this overhang of profitability. Profitability, the biggest lever is the competition that they're locked in with one another. Even though, and I, th- I think we talked about this on the episode, like regulatory and antitrust concerns, you know, are huge, but. Given the current state of play, is there a path to a merger here? And I think that's the that's the wild card. Let's suppose there's not a path to profitability for these companies without a merger. So the assumption there is these are two marketplace businesses that are both massively subsidizing and spending on acquisition and retention on both their supply side and demand side. Let's make a quick assumption here that autonomy is not the answer and that we can go back and and revisit that assumption. So if that is the case, 
like what you would typically see in a marketplace business, like what we saw with um, uh, Rover and Dog Vacay, as we heard from Aaron on, on that episode, a merger makes a ton of sense because... And Trulia and Zillow, and also we, we haven't covered it, but Grubhub and Seamless... There's just massive margin expansion when you're no longer, I mean, in those companies' case, buying the same keywords and bidding each other up on Google. But, um, you know, I think there's very similar things going on with Uber and Lyft. So then the answer would turn to, okay, well, it makes sense for them to merge then. Well, I would assume, and and it'd be interesting to see if there's a game of chicken here where they try and do this, but I would assume that the FTC would judge that as anti-competitive because the ride-sharing market is so massive now and because the two of them combined basically have 100% of it. And if you believe the S1s, they combined have more than 100% of it based on what each company (laughs) says they own of the market. It's something like 60-some percent and 30-some percent or maybe 40% in the U.S. And so uh, if you remember from what Kathleen Phillips was telling us on the Zillow Trulia merger, uh, they defined the market not as the online real estate advertising market, but the broader real estate advertising market. And so it went through. And the question is, for Uber and Lyft, would they classify ride sharing as something different than taxi or ride sharing something different than sort of for hire plus taxi plus public transit plus like, are they going to get the Google halo of we're not a search engine company to be judged <laughs> against all other search engine companies. We're a technology, we're a technology company, company that offers all these different services. And so, okay, so let's say they fail to make that case and it would just be judged. You guys are a ride-sharing company in a ride-sharing market and you two own all of it in the US. It's interesting then that neither company would have a path to profitability because they both cannot sustainably continue on the current plan and they can't merge. And when you take that one step further, I see you shaking your head, we should revisit that. The The question that pops into my mind is, it's interesting that anti-competitive legislation in the US is predicated on the notion that these companies wouldn't have near infinite access to capital. That of course they would have to get profitable, otherwise they couldn't continue to exist. And of course, you know, a company couldn't get this big and be this unprofitable. And in fact, there'd be two of them that are continuing to get less profitable, continuing to get larger. The the supposition is that, you know, businesses are built in a different way. I don't think that fully holds water, but I think that's like a good jumping off point for the discussion of what is the path forward. It's such a crazy dynamic in this market right now for all the reasons you just said, like, Assuming they can't make that technology, we're technology company argument to the FTC, then clearly a merger should be blocked by existing regulatory frameworks. However, if a merger doesn't happen, it almost assuredly results in bankruptcy of one or both of these companies. (laughs) So like, (laughs) what do you do? The interesting thing is that the U.S., regulations around anti-competitive behavior is designed to optimize for the consumer. So what is the best thing for the American consumer? It typically is competition to keep prices, you know, at a, at a market rate. Right now, the best thing for the American consumer is this massive subsidy of... I guess it's probably likely to be Lyft would go bankrupt before Uber because Uber raised a lot more money and Uber also has Eats and other... So if Lyft goes bankrupt, though, then like that's that's bad for the American consumer, right? So actually, I wonder if... 
I don't know how forward-thinking and insightful the regulators would be. What they probably should do is say, we will approve a merger with certain restrictions placed on your operations. Like you can't raise prices more than X you know, per year or something like that. Now, whether the companies would go for that, I don't know. That could be a potential way of threading the needle. Yeah. And I'm curious, would ridesharing ever become a regulated monopoly or regulated duopoly the same way that, uh, I guess, what's the best example of a... Well, like uh, uh, the the uh, power industry, the telephone industry. I guess any infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. The same way that AT&T and Verizon are allowed to, to you know, they get special privileges because they spent the money to lay the lay the infrastructure to make all the calls they get special privileges because of that but they they have operational constraints placed on their business man we're just riffing here uh so i don't (laughs) think we've we've thought through i I certainly haven't thought through enough about this to make like a recommendation i feel solid standing behind however i could actually see with like a number of technology quote-unquote technology industries that being a path that makes a lot of sense like you know, take Google and Facebook, right? You know, certainly take ride sharing. While there wasn't the same kind of like laying of the wires in the ground that the cable companies and the phone companies and the power companies, you know, did in the ground or on telephone poles, they did build this infrastructure and they should enjoy special privileges because of that. However, like the effectively monopolies that they've created are not good for either the business environment in the case of, of Uber and Lyft or, or for consumers. Yeah, that's a bunch of half-baked thinking by two non-lawyers about regulatory frameworks. But this feels like where there's smoke, there's fire. Like I, I feel like we should continue to re- revisit this uh, in future months and years and that there will be some sort of negotiation with the U.S. government in order to have one or both of these companies get to profitability in the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, there's no way if you are the CEO, you know, if you're if you're Dara, if you're Logan, or if you're John, uh, that the events of the last few months haven't put merging back at the forefront of your mind. Yeah. Well, and and as we've talked about several times on the show, if both entities are public, it's much easier to structure M and A events. Even if one company's public, it was extremely difficult when both of them were private because. You know, how do you value the shares? Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides 
for any keyword mentioned based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. Okay. Well, those are our unstructured thoughts on uh, uh, <laughs> on the recent IPOs uh, leading into uh, leading into questions here. So first one that we want to do from Alexander Green, what do you guys make of big mutual funds already owning stakes in not just Lyft and Uber, but a lot of these IPOs? You know, it's been talked about uh, that uh, because of that dynamic, then there hasn't been as much demand from them. Uh, these are the Fidelities, the T-Rows, uh, et cetera. Uh, in the order books for the IPOs because they already have they already have stakes either close to what they want in these in these companies as public entities before the IPO or 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 even more than they want. Well, let's let's look at a benefit of what it's done, and that is because you have crossover between the private market and public market investors, we are more likely to see a stable price handoff from the private markets to the public market. I think we've talked about this in the main show a bunch, big risks around uh, if you throw something over the wall from a bunch of private investors who might be doing their math differently than, than public investors tend to think about it. And nice to have institutionals on the private side who are sort of doing the math the way that uh, uh, public company investors tend to. I believe where both of these companies, at least we're just still talking about Lyft and Uber, uh, are trading right now is roughly where they were trading on the private markets. <laughs> so I think this is a really good point, Ben. And where a lot of the institutionals bought their shares. I mean, if you look at uh, Uber hasn't really moved much in the last two to three years since you started seeing the big institutionals come in. I would assume no one's doing like a discounted cash flow here since they're, I mean, when do you start factoring in earnings? <laughs> well, <laughs> to our previous conversation about profitability, can't have cash flow without, uh, you know, cash flow. <laughs> and there's so many confounding variables there that I, I don't know uh, how much faith you could put in a model that makes assumptions about when profitability will occur and how. I just want to represent that as an interesting pro of mutual funds coming in early. It's interesting to me that retail investors don't get to participate in the post-IPO growth because we tend to not see post-IPO growth in the companies where these mutual funds were, you know, in it two or three years before they went public. You know, I actually want to come back to your first point. As I think about this and as a um, marketplace investor uh, at Wave, I think it's helpful to remind ourselves that the stock market is just that. It is a market. It is a marketplace. And what are all markets driven by? They're driven by supply and demand. This whole concept of IPO pops 
and uh, narratives around companies when they go public, you know, seeing this uh, swell of demand and re- you know, massive increase in valuation from where they were valued in the private companies, that was predicated on an imbalance in supply and demand. What's a good example of a, a you know, company from the past that... Um, well, <laughs> EA wasn't uh, in the beginning, but was shortly thereafter. Uh, you know, when all the when these dynamics happened in the past, and it was just normal that you had expected this, it was because public market investors wanted to buy these stocks, did not have access to them as private companies because companies only raised a couple rounds from VCs when they were private and then they would go public. So you had this big supply-demand imbalance. This doesn't exist anymore. So like IPOs are just... Uh, it's almost just like a technicality these days. Yeah, if you're a big institutional and you want to get into a company that's valued over $5 billion, like when I say big institutional, it's a, a traditionally a public market investor and, and a mutual fund manager. You can, you can figure out how to go lead their next round or participate in their next round by secondary shares. Yeah, markets, exactly. So there's, there's shares posts, there's um, equity, there's... Uh, uh, several out there. It's it's very easy to do this. Is second market still a thing? I think so. That was one of. The, I remember during the Facebook IPO. That was when all the Facebook people started getting liquidity on their shares. Alexander, this is a a really great point. One we probably didn't talk about enough on the Uber and Lyft IPO episodes, and has a lot of complexity to it. And and I think it's interesting when you zoom out and think about the the macro point of who was supposed to take on risk in the private markets, and that was accredited investors and venture capital institutions, and who is supposed to have well-documented risk and thus mitigated upside, and that was the American public post-IPO. And what we've seen in the last few years is just a massive, massive blurring of those lines. And it really makes you wonder, is that permanent, or are we going to see either because of of law or because of, and, and by that I mean because of new legislation, or because we just see how it tends to play out when you run a model over 10 years and a bunch of these companies that that, that will stop and this like little experiment ended up not being fruitful. I don't think that's the case, but you know, it, it does make you wonder, are, are we seeing a permanent shift here or not? You know, it's funny. I'm just laughing to myself here. One, one more one more point on this. I think this is such a great question. And I think it's unlocked uh, a lot of thinking, for me at least here, uh, I think for both of us. But before we move on, <laughs> back to supply and demand and the dynamics here. Ben, you said a minute ago, uh, the American public, you know, the retail investors have been, are sort of the losers here and have been locked out of investing in, in these companies when there's still, you know, growth and growth in valuation, at least ahead of them. That's actually not totally the case. I mean, think about who these, these quote unquote big institutions are that are crossing over. It's Fidelity, it's T Row. Like, you can go buy these mutual funds. Anybody can go buy uh, these mutual funds. So, you can't directly invest in these private companies, but it's very easy for you to go invest in these mutual funds that do. Okay, so what's going on there? Uh, just peel back the onion one layer further. If I'm Fidelity, if I'm T Row, if I'm Janus or like other you know big mutual fund companies out there, what's been going on with me? I have been under siege for the last ten to twenty years by Vanguard and index funds <laughs> and passive investing, right? And like my product that I historically have been selling to consumers to to you know re- retail investors to come and invest with with me 
is no longer compelling, right? Uh, you know, everybody uh, it's, was it's, no longer, yeah, was no longer compelling against right? the vanguards and yeah, against the vanguards and and even even you know fidelities and the like. They're offering their own index funds, passively managed low fee index funds. So how do you compete with that? The way you compete with that is you do exactly what they're doing here: is you offer vehicles and funds that cross over and invest in private companies that you di- are now differentiated from the passive index funds. Is this strategy working? Well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for, 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 for these mutual funds, like number one, have they drummed up new demand? Like have they, have they generated a bunch of new revenue from uh, the fees that they generate from these mutual funds because they have grown their assets under management? And then two, has it provided the return that uh, people would hope by rushing into these vehicles with unique access? Yeah, it's a good... That's a man. good... We should do some spin up some acquired research. Yeah, really good study. I was wondering about this because I have like a fidelity managed 401k from when I was at uh, Microsoft. And I was like, do I do I have exposure to some of these pre-IPO? And, you know, you hear about these these institutions coming in, but I, I have no idea what funds they end up actually trickling into. Any... LPs out there, if you want to do a project and basically just follow the money here uh, <laughs> and like where where does this money come from? What funds within Fidelity, within T-Row are investing? What are the returns on those funds? What are the fee structures? What percentage of, you know, the total capital under management for, for the Fidelities and et cetera does that represent? I'd be very interested to know. Me too. All right, sticking on the uh, large IPO theme before we get into some some unrelated questions. David, do you want to take it from uh, from Peter? Yeah, from uh, from Peter. Shout out to shout out to uh, Peter, a good friend from uh, way 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 back home for me. Uh, he had um, some good questions for us on the Uber episode about self driving uh, that Ben referenced earlier. So, first question. Is Uber going to be the ones to make self-driving work? <laughs> Second question, does it matter? Third question, did it ever even make sense for Uber to undertake this hardcore you know, robotics and automation and AI project, considering, this is uh, Peter, considering that the value of their platform is roughly the same on anyone's self-driving car? All really good questions. I don't actually have the answers to any of them, but we can speculate. I don't have an opinion yet, but I want to walk us through a framework where I may pull pull out of it with an opinion at the end. <laughs> Great. Go for it. I th- that's, what, I guess, what the LP show is for. So uh, if you think about the value chain of how self-driving will work, on one end, you have the car manufacturer, and somewhere close to the car manufacturer is the autonomy provider, then all the way on the other side, you have the person who pays money to enjoy a ride from an autonomous vehicle. Are you assuming that's a uh, pay per ride? My personal view, and this is coming from a, probably a pretty biased person, but I haven't owned a car in five years and sort of have been doing the ride share only thing for a long time. How are you feeling five years in? You loving it still? Yeah, let's take this little detour. So the... Uh, Privilege disclaimer, I recognize that living within a half hour of work and uh, not having children allows me to uniquely do this. I think there are probably other ways in the future that people who don't live in this specific situation will be able to do it. But, you know, that out of the way, 
the only places where the friction points come in are like yesterday went on a long hike had to go rent a car to go which is way nicer than formally renting a zip car because you can actually park it right outside your house with all the gear and stuff other than that being kind of a pain and ironically not doing some of the travel the regional travel that uh used to do when i had a car and it was easy to just go take a weekend trip because you have sort of the counter incentive of oh well i have to worry about both the logistics and the cost of of having a car for my like 28 29 days out of 30 use cases it's amazing i definitely save thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year and uh, i get good exercise and on the one or two days where it's raining or something and i need to take an uber to work that's super easy it's it's uh way cheaper than owning a car there yeah I can totally understand really good most days. And then on the days where you would otherwise drive to do something enjoyable, kind of a pain. I will say the funny thing that I thought I was going to do was I I modeled it out and with not needing car insurance and not needing to pay parking either at work or at home and depreciation on the car, I was going to save like $8,000 a year or something. And so my thought was like, oh, well, I'll just put like a few thousand dollars into an account that I'm going to not worry about spending when I want to like take a weekend trip or something like that. And in practice, of course, that doesn't happen. The money just gets allocated <laughs> to something else. And you still feel the because I was trying to prevent feeling the um, sort of like visceral hit when you're looking at, oh, it's going to cost me $100 to go take a hike today. And like, it just doesn't actually happen because because you have made those costs per use instead of smoothed and sort of amortized across your entire life of car ownership, uh, even though they're way less, uh, it actually does prevent you from doing certain activities. Oh, man. What a human psychology like uh, uh, bug. But it's it's inescapable, even when you're, you're like, you know that it exists. <laughs> yep, completely. All right. All right. So, so Sorry for back the to the value chain. No, it's great. So you've got the car creator, you've got the uh, autonomy provider, and you've got the person enjoying the ride. Now, the question comes in sort of in the, you know, 75% on the right side there between the autonomy provider and the person in the car is, does that person own the car? And what is the percentage at steady state of autonomy of people that uh, have their rides provided by a fleet versus have their rides provided by a car that they own. At least for my own use, I think it's going to rely heavily on being a member of a fleet. Um, but I also think it will take a long time to get there for society at large. So let's say for some reasonable time period, you know, the next 15, 20 years or something like that, autonomy is going to play a bigger role in being a bonus add-on to cars that people buy. So you look at sort of what Tesla's doing now and and autonomy playing a larger role there than just a fleet that shows up that doesn't uh, require a driver. Because I also think, like, let's play this out too. In the next 10 years, I would suspect that even if there were autonomous Ubers and Lyfts, there's still going to be a person who's paid by the ride or by the hour to sit in that car and make sure it doesn't screw up at all. Like, I don't think that cost goes away and we're just instantly in this Either perfect... in the car or at a remote command center or I don't know. It's all still science fiction right now. Like, it's super unclear when even any of this happens. Yep. By the way, have you been in a self-driving Tesla? Uh, yes. It is incredible when you're on the highway and that thing is like changing lanes and, you know, doing the whole visualization on the dashboard in the, uh, in the Model 3 of... Um, it really is cool. Like 
you, you're living in the future there and you, you, you see a path to how this just happens universally. So it's, it's weird how it both feels like sci-fi and I don't know when it's going to happen writ large and also sitting in a car watching it work, feeling how amazing it is uh, in, in the right scenarios. Yeah, totally, totally. So anyway, where I was going with the value chain is where will the point of integration make sense where there is a provider in that value chain that is able to get leverage over other players in the value chain because of what the consumer demand is. And so let's assume that the consumer demand is I want autonomy in vehicles that I own because that we're like, at least in the US, very fixated on car ownership as an institution and a thing that that's like a rite of passage to adulthood. You know, when I was a kid, like I really cared about cars. And then I went through probably a 10 to 15 year period where I didn't care at all about cars. And I thought I never would again. But now like I... Uh, I do not have a Tesla, but I have friends who have Teslas and I've been in them. And I'm like, man, this is really cool. Like if I were <laughs> going to buy a car, I would like actually want to buy one of these. And I haven't felt that way in a long time. Yeah. If I bought a car, yeah, it would either be optimized for an adventure vehicle being the proper Seattleite that I am or a Tesla. And it's kind of like, but uh, both of those are Model so y. unlikely. Feels like yeah, a Venn diagram. That's true. That's true. I guess there's going to be multiple value chains here where you have one that's for people to own their cars and you have another that's for these self-driving fleets. And that's why you have people developing, doing a bunch of self-driving work to enable the traditional car OEMs. Like, I don't think the traditional car OEMs themselves are actually doing as much work as sort of their outsource partners and things they've done like buy crews and and, and um, sort of keep them at, at an arm's length, as well as Uber and Lyft doing it in-house. And the question is, where will consumer demand end up for autonomous driving? And how valuable will that make the sort of modular players versus the integrated players in who's creating that self-driving technology. And so what I mean by modular and integrated there is the Ubers of the world will probably be extremely integrated where they're not selling their technology out to someone else. They're using that in a, in a very integrated way that is... Um, Although, didn't um, in the investment that just happened in the self-driving division, weren't there car companies that invested? Uh, yes, there were. So that makes me think maybe they actually would license out the technology to car companies. I could also paint a, a path for it would be advantageous to Uber not to integrate and to be modular because what are they going to, are they going to make cars? <laughs> like we, we've seen with Tesla how hard that is. I, I would assume all of the work that Uber and Lyft have been doing on autonomy has been about retrofitting cars, right? Rather than producing their own as a as an OEM. So then conceivably they could just license that out to anyone who wanted to do that to the other. Do they do they view it as meaningfully differentiating or do they view the unique differentiating thing that they have as sort of the supply, demand, and network, and that the autonomy is just commodity and enables them to save costs on already having that network? Probably the latter. Yeah. Finally, getting back to Peter's question, it feels weird to me that these are both within the same company, and I don't think they will be long term. I bet Uber spins out, fully spins out the autonomous division. And I, I think that investment was probably the first step to that, especially given all the pressure on profitability from Wall Street right now. 
I think that's a really good reading of the tea leaves. And I think after starting with a value chain discussion and then trying to move into an integrated versus modular discussion and now landing at a core competency discussion, I think that's the right way to think about it, where as a company that is sort of um, uh, efficient, you want to own and keep secret and keep proprietary all of the things that you can uniquely do best in the world that are the core competency of your business that drive the, the moat and then outsource everything else. And I would bet when if we were sitting here having this discussion right now, uh, 20 years in the future, that autonomy is commoditized and that that is not the unique differentiator. It's not like Uber is going to solve autonomy and Lyft is not. So don't keep that in-house, outsource it, allow that to get better off of your balance sheet. Because if you're Uber, no one else in the world can uniquely leverage it like you can uh, within your network. And so, you know, if you can own a piece of a subsidiary that makes money by licensing it out and you get access to it, then great. Now you have two ways to create value from that technology and it doesn't destroy your moat. Yeah, this may be an imperfect analogy, but it feels like Intel and Microsoft to me. Intel is self-driving technology in this analogy. Also apt because Intel bought Mobileye. And then Microsoft is like the network, you know, the operating system, the network, if you will. And that's Uber, Lyft, ride sharing. And I think it would, the whole ecosystem would work better if those are two separate companies. And now I'm trying to revisit my statement too of uh, it's not like Uber's going to figure it out and Lyft's not. I would bet that there are several parties that arrive at a good autonomy simultaneously. There's been enough sort of shared brain power that has spun out of the the work that DARPA's done and people that have moved between these companies and t- trade secrets that have changed hands. I think there's going to be like a three to five year period where multiple players have really good autonomy simultaneously. And so then it's about what's the right capital structure for these businesses to leverage that technology. And it's probably off their books. Yep. Wow. Look at that. We formed an opinion. Wow. Shocking. Okay, cool. Moving on to our last couple questions um, from Packy McCormick in the Slack. <laughs> can you guys explain DoorDash and their valuation? Yes. Yes, we can. <laughs> also very related to uh, everything we've been talking about. Before you dive into this, I want to say there was an uh, awesome interview with uh, Bill Gurley on stage at some like travel conference. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> I watched this too. This is great. This is in maybe a year, year and a half ago, something like that. They're peppering Bill with like rapid fire questions at the end with just, hey, respond with with one word or phrase. And uh, they say DoorDash. He goes, third place. Third place. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bill, uh, <laughs> this goes to show we're all human. As great as Bill is in so many fronts, he's wrong on this one. <laughs> he's for sure wrong. Uh, and Bill said third place because, of course, he was... Uh, a lead investor and on the board of Grubhub uh, before they went public, and then and then now obviously with Uber and Uber Eats. Okay, DoorDash. Tackling the first question, <laughs> the second question, the valuation is a little harder. But on the first question, DoorDash did something really, really, really smart in the early days that is way under known and underappreciated uh, in tech, um, and I've only come to uh, understand it recently. DoorDash focused on the suburbs. All of DoorDash's biggest markets, I believe still to this day, I believe their their top biggest markets are not big cities. 
And so there's this like weird thing where people in tech, especially in San Francisco or or you know, in finance in New York or whatever, like people in big cities like DoorDash, like nobody uses DoorDash. But go out to like Santa Barbara or go to you know, even not not even they go to San Jose, uh, go to South Bend, Indiana, like anyway, like anywhere with a lot of strip malls. Yeah, like decent sized population centers with people like large middle to upper middle class populations that are willing to spend. And you have a few really interesting dynamics that DoorDash has completely nailed. So one, the actual like product need for delivery in those communities is way stronger than in a city. Like if you live in a city like San Francisco or New York or Chicago or whatever, you can just walk down the street and get takeout from a really good restaurant. I door dashed some Mediterranean food last night and I always feel so like living in a city where I can walk to eight different restaurants within a few blocks. I felt so lazy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we literally like exactly where Bed lives in Seattle is like the 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 lowest like utility of a food delivery platform. <laughs> <laughs> so one, okay, but but think about like in the suburbs. You, you probably live in a standalone single family house. You probably have a family. Your, your closest nearby restaurants are driving distance. Uh, they may or may not be any good, but they're certainly not densely packed. You're trying to juggle a bunch of stuff. You'd be at soccer practice for your kids or, you know, whatever. Uh, you're trying to get food on the table. Wow, delivery. Like, that's actually, like, really valuable. Okay, that's one thing they figured out. The second aspect that I, I believe is more appreciated in tech circles, I don't think as widely known, the culture and execution of DoorDash is unparalleled. Like one of uh, our investments at Wave was a team of early folks from DoorDash and just the pure uh, speed and intensity with which they execute on things and that they did execute at DoorDash and the company still continues to like it it's it much more mirrors the you know 996 Chinese culture than it does you know Silicon Valley definitely not you know 10 <laughs> what, what would Silicon Valley culture be like maybe 1044 <laughs> uh so these days that, that that's, that's harsh unfair. David that that is that is too harsh but um they are really really militant executors so I don't actually know much about the company. I will say last night was literally my first time ordering from DoorDash instead of Uber Eats. You uh, frequently meet with uh, uh, DoorDash and ex-DoorDash folks. I didn't realize, I just looked up, they're only a five-year-old company. Yeah. Tony, the uh, the CEO, and one of the other reasons I know a bunch about the company uh, and, and several of his co-founders, they were all the year ahead of me at GSB. So they started, DoorDash started as, quote, Palo Alto Delivery. It was just the founders, Tony and the founders, like going to restaurants in Palo Alto doing delivery for them like tony like delivered food to <laughs> jenny and my house in palo alto in the early days and obviously they've grown a lot since then wow um, that's wild yeah so then okay so then the, the third thing i want to say on doordash and this relates a little bit to their valuation can you share what their valuation is oh uh i don't recall i believe it was like 12 and a half in this most billion in this most recent round yeah something wild something yeah like, something huge something up in lift territory yeah exactly exactly okay so the other thing that they realized pretty early on and then have, have massively massively doubled down on since is that this is a scale business and they have been very focused on <laughs> winning and achieving scale in the markets that they're in. And I think they've done a pretty good job of that. They did the SoftBank round where 
they sold like 40% of the company. This was maybe two years ago. They realized that if they were going to have a chance of competing with Uber, let's forget about Grubhub for a minute, they needed to start raising massive amounts of capital to compete with Uber Eats because Uber Eats started in cities. Was They were they realized this suburbs thing. They were coming out to suburbs. DoorDash realized that they were also probably going to have to go into cities eventually. And so they kind of took the uh, took the red pill, if you will, and, and said, okay, we also need to raise huge <laughs> amounts of capital. They've had a lot of dilution, but they've raised enough capital through these rounds over the last two years that I think, I haven't done the math, but relative to the amount of funding that is going into Uber Eats in the US, DoorDash probably has an equivalent or a greater amount of capital. And so they're actually able to kind of fight toe-to-toe with, with Uber Eats right now. So I think that's what's going on here, all of those dynamics. I, I won't make a, a judgment about whether a $12.5 billion valuation uh, is meriting or not, but I think they are very much for real. And I think Bill is completely wrong that they're a number three player. This is definitely one of those scenarios, too, where the valuation is n- not where the deal starts it's where the deal ends and i don't mean chronologically but i mean how it gets backed into so where it starts is we need to raise this much money and then a second factor in that equation is this is how much leverage we have because there's so many people that want to give us money yep which the for that first big round they raised from softbank that leverage was low because the narrative was doordash is a number three player so that's why they sold a whole bunch of the company to do it Right. But boy, this is coming full circle. Getting to our original conversation around a supply-demand match and how that drives share price. You know, if, if you have multiple capital sources that are all willing to put huge amounts in, you can decide, hey, I want to sell less of my company. And one of these players is going to go for it. And then, of course, you selling less of your company and raising the amount you want to raise creates the product that is the valuation. And so, for listeners who uh, whose eyes pop when you see a valuation like this, know that it's not a company saying, I think I'm worth $12 billion, and an investor going, I think you're worth $12 billion too. It's sort of the product of the other components of the deal creating that. Uh, that is the output. Supply and demand. Always helpful to uh, reduce what's going on to those dynamics. Anything else on no, I, I think that's a good... Frankly, I appreciated it because I haven't followed the DoorDash story nearly as well as you have. It's not a well-known story. I, I can't wait to do uh, the Acquired episode on it when uh, something happens to them, which certainly <laughs> certainly it will. Okay, so let's wrap up with my favorite question of the bunch here from TagFu in the Slack. Uh, Jason, what is one widely held tech prediction that we would buy a put option on if we could? And this was inspired by the uh, the Jake Saper LP episode we did a, a while back. This is a great question. Um, and, and I got to say, TagFu is like the Slack MVP. If you're someone who hangs out in the acquired Slack, and, and I think Dave and I are in there every at least every other day, Jason, you're always you always have some insightful thing. And it's not just check out this article. It's here's my three or four nuanced thoughts on this thing. Here's how I would push back. It's 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 he, you're good, man. Yeah, MVP. So one other way to think about this is because they coined the term. I think we we should give them credit. The bedrock capital guys who invest in in uh, narrative violations. And if you go to their website and read their letter, it's kind of amazing to track like what they mean by narrative violations, why they make the investments they make, what the investments they made, or what companies they would qualify as narrative violations that happen sort of uh, a priori before the firm. And another way to think about this is what is a 
common narrative today that everyone goes, oh, yep, definitely, that you would say, you know what, I don't buy it. I think the future is going to turn out differently than the commonly held belief. And David, to back it into one of your favorite frameworks, that's become one of my favorite frameworks. How do you be both non-consensus and right? This one at least is how do you be non-consensus and then the future will show what the future shows. <laughs> and you could, uh, if you, you could guarantee being non-consensus and then uh, <laughs> so you have at least 50% of the equation and, and hopefully you're right on a few of them. I'm not ready to buy a put option on this yet, but I'll throw out as a, uh, and that's a metaphorical put option, but I'll throw out as a uh, postulate. And that's, so over the last four to five years, if you talk to any smart person in finance or tech, what they tend to say is, yeah, we've got a correction coming. And some people are even a little more alarmist and say, we're in a bubble. And I can't tell you when, but sometime between six months from now and two years from now, sort of, we're going to, that's going to change. Like we're going to enter a pretty significant correction. And the thing I've been trying to think about recently is what if that's not true? Like what if we've got a while longer still in this bull run? And what if there actually is such a significant increase in the pace of new value creation that comes from a lot of these technology companies And of course, we're just talking about this tech sector here, not the global economy more broadly. Although those two things are increasingly linked. Yes. What if we're not about to see the music stop? To what could that be attributed? I haven't landed on that yet. Like, I don't don't know to what could it be attributed other than all these companies that have all these really high valuations actually deserve them, will grow into them. A lot of these uh, bet the farm uh, strategies of expand at all costs because we're going into one of the most massive markets of all time. What if those people are right and then they just get to run hugely revenue and profitable businesses at scale in enormous markets and and that was correct? Mm-hmm. Maybe a huge catalyst that could drive a, a future like this could be Uber and Lyft figure out a way to merge, right? And then it's like a profitable, enormous business like just that announcement imagine what it would do to the (laughs) combined market caps of the companies like i don't know you'd hit that 120 billion threshold (laughs) right jason this is exactly what the opposite of what you wanted because this is not this is not uh, me putting a stake in the ground definitively here this is me saying (laughs) what if what if what if but yeah here are my thoughts on on this i'm inspired by two sayings uh from each of my two you know favorite venture capital, early stage venture capital firms that I admire more than anyone, one from Sequoia and one from Benchmark here. One of Sequoia's key cultural aphorisms uh, is why now? Uh, so whenever they look at a investment uh, or a company, that's one of, if not the biggest thing on their minds. So like, why Why now? What is, what is going on you know, right now that enables this, that didn't enable it before? And why in a year or two is going to be too late uh, to build this this company. And then the benchmark side of things, which this is, these are really saying the same thing, uh, but I just love this saying, I think Matt Kohler uh, originated this, is that the job of a venture capitalist and, and, a, and an entrepreneur, people think it's to see the future. It's not to see the future. It's to see the present very, very clearly. <laughs> and so where am I going with this? What I try to do in investing is is exactly that don't 
try and see the future. Because when you try to see the future, you get blinded to truly answering the why now question. And so things like (laughs) what's going to happen with autonomy and self-driving cars, things like robotics, things like cryptocurrency, if you get too caught up in thinking about the future, then you get muddy and unclear on like, why now? Like, what is this going to do now? (laughs) And businesses are built on the now. Science projects are built on the future. I would buy put options on any near-term implementation of all of those things (laughs) if I could. Uh, I would buy 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 options i would literally buy and invest in and we do invest in it wave uh companies that are serving what is going on right now so a a great example we're not going to announce this investment for a little bit but i can describe our most recent investment in, in broad strokes is a marketplace for an existing industry where there is buying and selling trading happening all the time but uh basically without technology it's an industry where people like don't work at desks and don't use computers yet it's a sophisticated global industry but what has happened all of these people all around the world who participate in this industry now have smartphones and what do they have on their smartphones they have whatsapp and they communicate with each other and they transact and do business over whatsapp so what did this company do they just built a business on whatsapp to make these transactions more efficient like that's that's like i i want to buy businesses built on whatsapp all day long (laughs) you know (laughs) that's a really good example to me of like something that okay like this is happening right now uh this is like a clear demand that is for making a transaction more efficient and we can build a business around that and i don't have to believe you know three steps in the future about what's going to happen with like i don't know how autonomy is going to play out i don't know how crypto is going to play out i don't know how robotics is going to play out Actually, David, this gets to a really good, this wasn't quite the question, but a discussion that we had sometime, it was about a year ago. So doing the work that we do at PSL, I get very good at developing pitches. And at this point now I can pattern match pitch archetypes into like, what in what way are you trying to tell your story? Because like I've tried to craft so many different narratives about why a company is interesting. And I was talking to you about the pitch narrative of the sort of phase one, phase two, phase three of here's, here's our wedge. Here's what that allows us to do. And then here's the big reveal at the end. <laughs> it turns out actually our Trojan horse is this thing. And you were talking about, I think you dubbed it, I don't believe in hops, where as an investor, it's already so unlikely that your first thing goes to plan that I'm not willing to like go make two, especially not three hops into like what it could eventually be because the sort of matrix of possibilities of things that could go wrong along the way are are just like so overwhelming and compounding that sort of the most that you want to do on that, and I I think this makes a lot of sense, and feel free to correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, is that your first business should be the business. That's great. And you can maybe allude to or dream about what it could potentially become in the future, but it really should just be the main business at a broader scale and described in a different way rather than taking an asset you've built and then pivoting into a whole completely different thing. Yeah. I really think that the Matt Kohler and benchmark saying encapsulates this uh, super well for me, which is like 
don't don't try and see the future. Like it's a fool's errand to try and see the future. Try and see the present very very clearly. That's hard to do, and that takes a lot of skill and work. Because on the surface level, like you can guarantee you're probably not seeing the present very clearly. Like uh, uh, Glow is a great example of this. You know, podcasters were and are creating monthly subscription uh, bonus content in various ways before glow and it's like okay great like can we make that easier and uh, more accessible to more people yeah great like that's seeing the present clearly let's do that yep skate an existing thing that is i mean it's it's the marketplace thesis right people are already doing a thing it's inefficient glow is in a marketplace but transactions are already happening just in kind of a terrible way and can you add efficiency and therefore sort of create value through efficiency in a marketplace yep awesome Well, we have like four or five more listener questions here that we should absolutely get to. And maybe that's just a good excuse for us to to do another uh, another Q&A episode. Indeed, we will have to. Cool. Well, LPs, we will see you soon. I think uh, if you're listening to this, the EA IPO episode will have already dropped. So would love uh, would love feedback from that. Zoom, I think, will be our next one. And we've we've got some exciting stuff to round out the season after that. Yeah, very special episode. Oh, and uh, I think we're going to try and do Slack. Oh, yes, uh, right. It's on our calendar as well. Forget about Slack. Yeah. So if anyone's listening and wants to hit us up before we record either Slack or Zoom with any good tidbits that you think we should uh, chat about in the episode, please do. And we love our our LPs for that because I think uh, we've already gotten a few good conversations before recording by getting to share episode topics before recording with y'all. All right. Happy Memorial Day, everyone. We will talk to you next time. Cheers.